Matthew's Gospel, if you have your copy of God's Word this morning, you'll find your place in chapter 14, and we'll begin reading in verse number 22. As I mentioned last Sunday morning and the Sunday morning prior to that, Matthew 14 records the final days of our Lord's Galilean ministry. That ministry began somewhere around maybe December of 20, A.D. 27 and ended around A.D. 29, uh, spring of that year, somewhere in that vicinity. The miracles in this chapter occur as our Lord's ministry is drawing to a close. At the time that Jesus worked these miracles, right after John's death, or His execution, and then the feeding of the 5,000 that we mentioned on last Lord's Day. Right after that time, we are about 10 to 12 months away from the crucifixion of our Lord, just to give you an idea of where we are. At the heart of this miracle this morning, and the heart of the text that we're going to read, beginning in verse 22 through the end of the chapter, verse 33, would be the heart of it is that when everything was done and the Lord had stilled the storm and the Lord had come to His disciples, uh, they worship Him and declare that of a truth Thou art the Son of God. Both are inseparable. If you worship Him, you will know that He's the Son of God. And if you know He's the Son of God, you will worship Him. Those are inseparable. Listen to this very familiar story, beginning in verse 22 of Matthew 14. And straightway Jesus constrained His disciples to get into a ship and to go before Him unto the other side, while He sent the multitude away. And when He had sent the multitudes away, He went up into a mountain apart to pray. And when the evening was come, He was there alone. But the ship was now in the midst of the sea, tossed with waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went unto them, walking on the sea. When the disciples saw Him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a spirit, and they cried out for fear. But straightway Jesus spake unto them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I, be not afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it be thou, bid me come unto thee on the water. And he said, Come. And when Peter was come down out of the ship, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand and caught him, and said unto him, O thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? And when they were come into the ship, the wind ceased. Then they that were in the ship came and worshipped him, saying, Of a truth thou art the Son of God. And when they were gone over, they came into the land of Gennesareth. And when the men of that place had knowledge of him, they sent out all are sent out into all that country round about, and brought unto him all that were diseased, and besought him that they might only touch the hem of his garment. And as many as touched were made perfectly whole. 
As I mentioned at the heart of the miracles in our passage this morning, is the confession of the disciples in verse 33 that Jesus is the Son of God, of a truth, He is the Son of God, and their worship, where they bow before Him and honor and glorify Him. This is an important time in the kingdom of God, in the maturity and the development of our Lord's disciples. In Matthew 3.17, God the Father said about Jesus, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Nothing about Him that I'm not pleased with. So you have God the Father talking publicly, speaking audibly and openly about the fact that Jesus in truth is the Son of God because the Father is well pleased with Him. In Matthew 8, 29, we go to the other, perspe- other end of the spectrum, and you have the demons who actually say, in Matthew 8, 29, What have we to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of God? You have God the Father audibly saying He's well pleased of a truth. This is His Son. This is the Son of God. And then even the demons confessing that. But as far as I can find, this is the first time that we have record of the twelve that Jesus called, clearly declaring and saying of a truth, this is the Son of God. They make this statement. Now obviously they have much to learn. Peter will make a greater statement in a few chapters. But they make this statement of a truth, thou art the Son of God. The question is, why do the disciples say this? What is it about Jesus? What is it about Him? What is it about His ministry, His actions, His teaching? What is it about this that causes them to say that? Matthew is pointing to the fact that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. That's what His gospel is telling us, that Christ is the one that was prophesied in the Old Testament. He is the one that is standing there with them. He's the one that came through the genealogy of Matthew's gospel. He's the one that Mary gave birth to. He's the one that has worked these miracles and done these teachings thus far. He is the one that John the Baptist identified as the Lamb of God and pointed men to in saying that He is the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. If you remember, a few weeks ago, Herod had a superstitious opinion of Jesus. He thought that he was the reincarnation of John the Baptist. Herod never said of a truth, Thou art the Son of God. Many of the Jews, if you remember, when they saw Jesus, said that he was Elijah uh, come back, or Jeremiah, one of the great prophets. But they have not confessed that he was of a truth, the Son of God. And that question still hangs this morning in the air. It still hangs in the mind and the heart of many people as to actually who this Jesus Christ is. There is a segment of our population that will still be rather reverent when you mention Jesus, although they never attend church, they make no public profession of faith. They still have enough integrity left from their being raised by either Christian parents or grandparents that they will still acknowledge that Jesus is more than a man, but the population is 
very, very rapidly decreasing from publicly stating of a truth, this Jesus is the Son of God. He is God in the flesh. Uh, I don't know any cult today that confesses that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. All cults that I know of deny the deity of Jesus Christ. Of a truth, the disciples say, you are the Son of God. How did they come to that conclusion? How did they, how did they come to be able to make that statement? Uh, I could ask you, how did, have you made that statement? Have you publicly declared uh, who Jesus is? And if you have, how did you arrive? Are you just parakeeting something your parents have said, your grandparents? Are you parakeeting what your church believes or what your pastor believes? Well, if so, that is not enough of a truth. Thou art the Son of God. Now, there's many creeks and streams that feed into this river of declaration. There's many things that contribute to their confession here. Most recently, of course, the story of the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 was convincing proof that this man, Jesus, was truly God and He had the power to work miracles. We will see also this morning His walking on the water proved again His power over the very creation that He was a part of back in the book of Genesis. Also, there are healings that the disciples had witnessed on either side of the miracle of the walking on the water. But the thing that is bringing them to this, to this time of worship and this time of confession is this, that in everything that, is, that Matthew has recorded, in everything they have seen and witnessed, Christ is being magnified. It is not just the, uh, the miracles. It is not just the healings. They are not getting the center of attention. Christ is the one to be magnified. And the disciples are beginning to see that in the future. They will see His suffering and His death, His burial, His bodily resurrection, and they will witness His ascension. And all of that will secure their eternal standing before God and the righteousness they must have. And so what it is saying this morning in this story of the walking on the water is the one who has fed the 5,000, the one who has grieved over the death of John the Baptist, the one in our text this morning who walks on the water and mercifully moves on to the land of Gennesareth and heals all of them who but touch the hem of his garment, he is of a truth the very Son of God. The Jesus you read about in the Old Testament prophecy is of truth the Son of God. The branch that is mentioned there, he that shall come, the Messiah, the promise made to Adam and Eve in the, in the garden about the one that would brew, that the one that would cut off the head of the enemy, the one that would come and, and bring life back in the, in the midst of death. That is of a truth, the Son of God. The one that Micah prophesied about in his prophecy of, of the one being born in Bethlehem, the servant that Isaiah prophet, prophesied about in the Old Testament the one greater than angels and man that the psalmist wrote about in the Psalms. He is in truth, of truth, He is the Son of God. The one that we read about page after page in the canon of Scripture talking about this man Jesus that the Gospels magnify 
and the Acts of the Apostles also glorify and preach, and that which the epistle writers magnify, that which John the Revelator sees in the ages to come, this is of a truth the very Son of God. And He is here walking on water to His disciples in the midst of their difficulty, in the midst of their hopelessness. Jesus is the Son of God. Everything about this story this morning is about Christ. And once the disciples understand who Jesus is, and again, this is not perfect understanding, but once they understand who Jesus is, and in, re- in return understand who they are in the face of Jesus, then their lives will be forever different. Ninety percent or more of the sermons we hear from this text is entitled with something like, how to survive the storms of life, or touching Jesus, of something of that nature. And Lord knows I've preached my share of those two. And while those things are true, Matthew is recording for us this central thought that when you read these stories and read these miracles, it is not about you claiming your miracle or you somehow spiritually reaching out and touching Jesus. It is about Him of a truth being the very Son of God. So Matthew is recording for us a portion of history that convinced the disciples of that truth. Specifically, we're about 10 to 12 months prior to His crucifixion. If you take Jesus out of this passage... Out of this time in history, what do you have? You have a bunch of losers trying to get a boat from one place to the other, and they would have eventually drowned, and their history would have been over. If you take Jesus out of this story, you would have a wicked king killing a good prophet, and it would have been nothing more. If you take Jesus out of this story, there would have been a bunch of people going to hear a very popular personality and got hungry and left and went back home. If you take Jesus out of this story, people in the land of Gennesaret would have been the same disease and sick. You interject Him in this story and history changes. Thank God history changed when Christ was incarnated. I remember hearing stating from this pulpit, years ago, that when Jesus Christ was born in Bethlehem of Judea, God put Him in this world with such force that it divided B.C. from A.D., and nothing has ever been the same. And that is exactly true. So here is Jesus. History cannot be understood. History cannot be appreciated. History cannot be valued. History cannot teach us anything of value when you remove Jesus from history. If you take Christ out of our nation, we are a nation of history, of life and death and failure and everything else that goes with destruction. Place Jesus in that history and things are different. As a matter of fact, the greatest things about the history of our nation are the things that we no longer are free to talk about, and that is the activities of God's grace in the midst of our history. You take Christ out of your history, and you're nothing but another descendant of a sinner 
who come along in life and done a bunch of good things and bad things, and all you'll be remembered for are two dates on a headstone, if even that, in this day and time, put Jesus in the history of your life by faith in His saving grace, and thank God it's miracle after miracle, it's amazement after amazement, it's God's grace on top of God's grace. And that is what we have in the text. Just think about what all has happened in history since we were here last Sunday. And if somebody listens to this down the road, they'll think I'm crazy, but I'm not. We have a history now of balloons being shot down. That's our big national history now. Isn't that amazing? I pray somebody will hear this 50 years from now and say, bless that poor man's heart. He must have been in the early stages of dementia. No, it's history. But think what all has happened in our history. But nothing makes sense without Scripture, and nothing makes sense without Jesus. The Bible tells us history is flawed. It tells us people are sinful and broken. Think about your family without a history of Jesus. Families are broken. Think about Lenore without a gospel witness. Would you want to live here? It's tough enough with a gospel witness. Would you want to live here without a gospel witness? Think about our state and about our nation, how broken it is. That's the history of it. But thank God the gospel tells us that God sent His Son to deal with the sins and the fundamental error of history and humanity, and that is the sinfulness of man. And not just world history or national history or local history that's flawed, but your history is flawed, and my history is flawed. I'm a direct descendant of a sinner. I'm a direct descendant of a sinner. I was at the, at the school this week, and... One of the teachers had forgot, this is good, he had forgot his Bible, one of our teachers had. And uh, the one that I had wasn't hardly large enough for him to read. So I, I have a couple things there in my study of my dad's that I stored there in my study. And uh, I went in and got my dad's Bible. And it was the first Bible he ever had. And I couldn't take it to the teacher. There was another one I was going to take him. But when I opened it up, it kind of fell apart. It just the glue has hardened and dry rotted, and the back pages had fell apart. But I turned to the front of it, and on February the sixteenth, nineteen forty-seven, my dad was born in twenty-six. In the front of the Bible, February sixteenth, nineteen forty-seven. You do the math. My dad wrote how his pastor had given him that copy of God's Word, and his pastor has signed it. And I stood there and wept. And I thought, God, you were working in my life in 1947 before I ever arrived. You had a preacher give my father a copy of your Word, and it's signed there in the front and dated. History. That is Jesus in history. I have a birthday, but that's not the greatest day. The greatest day is when my history was changed by His history, by God's history of bringing Christ into the world. We're reading this morning the history of the end of Jesus' Galilean ministry, the miracles that He worked a few months before the cross. But it all was leading 
to the cross. And now you and I, when we look in our history at the working of God among us, whether it be feeding us like the 5,000, walking to us in the midst of the difficulties of life, or calling us to come to Him for whatever we need, we receive that by faith and we look back to history where He bled, where He suffered, where He died, where He was buried, and where He rose again. And history is forever changed. Think about it. You see, history is about people. It's about families, cities, states, nations trying to fix themselves. It's mentioned in our text. The history of the Sea of Galilee. It's, it's all churned up. The history of fishermen who know well how to battle storms, but they're drowning. The history of a city of people sick and diseased in the land of Gennesaret. And uh, they just had to teach themselves to live with it. But now He's there and something can change. Something has changed because Christ is there. In fact, a large portion of your history and mine is just like the people in the text. It's us trying to fix ourselves. Do you remember it says in the text that in verse 24, the ship was now in the midst of the sea tossed with waves for the wind was contrary. If you read Mark's account and John's account and Luke's account, if you read Mark and John's account here, they were, and Mark especially, they were, they were struggling and rowing. They were fighting this. And I want to remind you, if, if you read the text, it says that He went in the evening in verse 24. Jesus sent them across and He goes up in the mountain in the evening. This is probably... Somewhere maybe, you know, six to nine in the evening, somewhere around that time, about supper time for us. And he don't come to them till the fourth watch, which would be somewhere early in the morning, five, six AM, four, five, six AM our time. So they've been out there, they've been in this eight or nine hours. They have been rowing in this, trying to fix this. Don't you think the people in Gennesareth in verse thirty four and thirty five have been trying to fix this? When we read of healings in the Bible, we read of people trying to fix it. We read of a woman who's been to physician, spent all she had. We read of men who are cutting holes in roof, letting people down. We read of people who've been bowed over for 18. We read of all of this. People trying to fix it. But there's no way to fix anything without Christ. And you can't fix your addictions. You can't fix your sinfulness. You can't fix your unrighteousness. You can't fix your lostness without Christ in our History. You remember Matthew's Gospel, the book of the generation of Jesus Christ, chapter 1, verse 1. It began with the history of Jesus. This book we're in this morning began with the history of Jesus. Do you remember how Mark's Gospel begins? Mark 1, 1, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Do you remember how Luke's Gospel began? For as much as many have taken in hand to set forth in order a declaration of those things which are most surely believed among us. Even as they delivered them unto us, which from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, it seemed good, having had perfect understanding of all things, from the very first to write unto thee in order, most excellent Theophilus, that thou mightest know the certainty of those things wherein thou hast been instructed. It's about Jesus you remember the beginning of John's gospel? In the beginning was what? The Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. All four gospel writers are telling us this is about Jesus being in your history. And Matthew 14 just narrows that down to a little boat on a very turbulent sea. 
And Christ was walking into their history. Thank God for our Savior of a truth. He is the Son of God. The skeptics, the lost man, the professing atheist and agnostic will say, He's not a part of my history. Yes, He is. He is a part of your history. I challenge you to go to the register deeds or clerk of court and sign any document that is not dated based upon His birth. A.D. He is a part of your history. Whether you want to believe Him or whether you do not, He is a part of our history. Well, the history of this introduction has been way too long. I know that. Look at one aspect, verse 22 and 23. And I want to answer that question. How did these disciples come to this confession and worship in verse 33? You saw they just were emotionally stirred up. I doubt if they had an emotion left. Now, if, you've been, if, if you are an experienced seaman, if you are an experienced fisherman, if you are an these guys knew that sea better than they knew anything else. I mean, that was where they lived. We know for a fact four or five of them probably that's where they made their living. But, I mean, that was the hub. That was where everything was. And they knew. They knew. And probably when he told them to go to the other side, they probably went right out just deep enough and they were going to hug the shoreline and just go, go around. But when he comes walking to them, they're probably somewhere out, in, as the Bible says, out in the midst of this thing and they have no control over what's happening at all. So they are not coming to verse 33 and worshiping Him because they've been worked up in emotions and they are thrilled and their emotions are spent. They are full of fear and anxiety. They have, just, they have drained every ounce of drink, out of strength they have intellectually, emotionally. You name it, it is all gone. But then when He comes walking and the winds lay down and the waves calm and He is there in the ship with them, they worship Him and they say of a truth, Thou art the Son of God. This is not an emotional response. This is not just an emotional response. They absolutely believe that the one now who is in the boat with them, the one they have seen healed, the one they have seen cast out demons, the one they have seen feed 5,000, the one they have seen grieve over the death of John Baptist, the one they have seen walk on the water... And now is with, they truly believe He is the Son of God, the one they have heard teach, and men stand astonished. The one who has called them from their livelihoods and places of abode, they believe that He is of a truth, the Son of God. I'm not standing here this morning preaching because when I was in high school, I decided that I wanted to be, pre wanted to be a preacher because of the great benefits that go along with it. I'm not here this morning because this is my vocational choosing I am here this morning because this is my calling. I am here this morning because I am convinced through the Word of God that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I was a church member before I was a preacher. I became a church member after I was saved, after I was born from above. And I was born from above because through the Word of God and the work of the Holy Spirit, I was convinced by the Word of God and the work of the Holy Spirit that of a truth, Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And here I stand after 1965, when God saved me, I still stand here this morning and I can say, I'm like Peter, I can't say it perfectly, but I can say it as best I know to say it, of a truth. He is the Son of God. And I believe that by faith. 
He is not the Son of God because I believe it. He is the Son of God, period. You've seen those bumper stickers. God said it. I believe it. That settles it. No. Chuck out the middle. God said it. Whether you believe it or not, that settles it. If God said it. The people are fascinated by what Jesus did. And here's the story. Let me, let me move quickly. John 6, 14, 15 tells us why they're in this situation. Jesus tells us in John 6, 14, and 15 that the people wanted to make him king. He had worked the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. Let's vote him in. Let's make him king. He said that he come to be king. He said that he, you've been talking about the kingdom and about the king. Let's do it. Let's do it. Let's get rid of Rome. Let's overthrow all of that. We want him to be the king. Man, he's feeding us. He is giving us everything we need. And it was for that reason that Jesus perceived that they would come and take him by force. It was for that reason that he sent his disciples across. And then he went up into the mountain to pray. The people are fascinated by his miraculous feeding power. And they're on the verge of demanding him be king and doing things contrary to God's will. Their political ambitions far outweighed their spiritual need or their spiritual realization of their need. His mission was not to come to be their fish-feeding king. That was not why he was here. Christ did not come here to make you wealthy. He did not come here to make you healthy. He came here to be king. He came here to be savior. He came here to meet your deepest need, which is your unrighteousness and your sinfulness, your alienation from God, your dark mind, your perverted thoughts, your lack of wisdom, your piles of unrighteousness, your filth, your stench, and your sin. Christ came to redeem you from every bit of that and make you righteous. That's his kingdom is those born from above. It is evident here that our Lord is in charge. Verse 22, He constrains His disciples. Verse 22, He sends the multitude away. People look at this text and say, Oh, He's God. He, he controlled the waves. Yes, He did. He's God. He rescued Peter. Yes, He did. But don't miss verse 22. He's God. He constrained His disciples. And they obeyed Him. It wasn't just the winds and the waves that obeyed Him in this text. It was His disciples that obeyed Him. And He also sent the multitudes away. How do you send a multitude away when they want to make you king? You do that because you are committed to the Father's mission. He didn't come that the multitudes make Him king. He came to do the will of the Father. Of a truth, they say in the boat, this is the Son of God. And there's many contributing factors to that. And one of them is, they not only had just seen Him grieve over John and feed 5,000, but they had also seen Him now send them out to the sea and also send the multitudes away. And they had seen Him ascend up into His place of prayer. Of a truth, He is the Son of God. Every time I hear Him speak in the pages of God's Word, every time... I read something that He has said. Every time I see an action of this one, every time I hear a testimony of His grace, every time I hear a congregation, a choir, or individual sing of His mercy and love, from my heart comes this confession of a truth. He is the Son of God. Every time a young person or an adult comes to me or calls me and says, Preacher, I want to tell you what Christ has done for me. They tell me their conversion. They tell me how He saved them. They tell me how He made the 
them brand new. I say of a truth, He is the Son of God. Every time I sit with a family who say we found out today of a sickness or a disease in our family, we must do this, A, B, C, or D. But preacher, the Lord's been faithful, and God is with us, and God is helpless. I say in confession of a truth, He is the Son of God. Every time I talk with a young preacher who comes to me and asks me about a church and about church situations and how he's praying about something, and on one day the church is ready to divide in five ways, and the next day he calls and says, Preacher, you wouldn't believe what the Lord did for us today. I say of a truth, He is the Son of God. But above and beyond all of that that I see and hear and sense down here, it is what He is doing up there. He is on the mountain while they are rowing, and He is up there in prayer, interceding for Him. Do you understand the King is on a mountain? You don't put kings on a mountain, you put them on a throne. But our king goes to the mountain. And he's on the mountain for one reason here, and that is to intercede for those of his own. He will go to another mountain not too many months away. And thank God he won't go there just to intercede. But thank God he will go there to substitute himself that you and me may have eternal life. Here on the mountain he prays that they may have temporary deliverance from a storm. But on that coming mountain, thank God, he will bleed and die that we may have permanent release from the bondage and penalty of sin. Of a truth, of a truth, he is the Son of God. The issue here is who's in charge. It's not the disciples, it's not the multitude, it's not the sea, it's not the boat. It's not the sick people of Gennesaret. He's in charge. May I remind you of that this morning? He is in charge. Because He is in our history. He is in our moment. He is in our time. With His eternity. He's not going to be made king here. And He's not going to do anything here that we might think we want Him to do or think we need Him to do that will interfere with why He's really here. And He's really here to seek and to save that which was lost. Jesus' faithfulness to His mission. To me, that's one of the classic miracles of this text. He remains absolutely faithful to do what the Father sent Him here to do. Do you know what? Had He become king right here you and me would not be right here if he had let them crown him you and me would be lost he was faithful to his mission they come and they worship notice his praying for them he's on the mountain they're on the sea and he's praying for them. While I'm preaching this morning, he's seated at the right hand of God the Father, interceding for me in the very history in which I'm living. Now, my history differs from yours. I may, I may have a moment in history this morning that's a red-letter moment. This may be a D-Day for me. This, this may be a Pearl Harbor spiritually for me today. 
And you look at me and say, that's nothing compared to what I'm going through. Here's the good thing. He's on the mountain interceding for both of us. And He does that with a love and compassion like no one else. Here again, do you know why He originally wanted to go pray at the opening of this chapter? Because of His grief over John the Baptist. You remember that? And when He was wanting to do that, He ends up feeding the multitude. And now He's back up on the mountain to pray. And we don't know what He prayed for. We don't understand that. But the text does tell us in Mark's Gospel that He saw them rowing. He's up on the mountain He sees them, and He's faithful to His mission, but He's also faithful to His own, His watchfulness. He comes walking on the water in verse 25. They think it's a spirit or a ghost. They cry out in fear, and don't give these men a hard time. If you'd have been out there eight, nine hours, Lord knows you'd have known what to do. They are exhausted. And don't think that the text doesn't indicate that he was going to pass them by and if they didn't do certain things. No, he's coming to them. He's coming to come alongside of them. He didn't reprimand them because they're obeying him. He didn't chide them, chew them out, or downgrade them. Verse 26 said, he said, be of good cheer. In other words, get courageous, guys. Take heart. It is I. You don't ever have to fear. Be not afraid. Do not be afraid. He came walking on the stuff that was drowning them. He came superior to the elements for which they were terrified. He came conquering and having already conquered the very elements that were bringing them terror and fear. That's why we can say of a truth, He is the Son of God. I remember the fear and the thinking of my eternal destination one time in my life. And thank God He came to me and conquered that through His saving grace. These men are really scared. When He came, Peter said, If it's it's you, Lord, bid me come into the water. And there's a thousand messages on that. 999 of them probably ain't right. But you say, well, what happened here? He come walking to Peter, and Peter saw him and asked if, he could, if it was him, if he could come to him. And Jesus said, yeah, it's me, come. Peter formed the question, in which, what, what else could Jesus have said? He said, if it's you, ask me to come. Jesus invited him to come. Peter came, and Peter walked on the water to go to Jesus. That's what he did. He obeyed Christ again. We all know the story. Peter sank because he's not Christ. He sank because he saw, he, he looked around, saw, and the wind boisterous. Old Vance Ebner said he didn't know you could see wind, but when you get that scared, you'll see anything. And that's about right. But he went to Jesus, and Jesus addressed his faith. But then he brought him on back in verse 32 to the ship, and wind ceased. And at that point is where we have the worship and the confession. So much more I could say this morning, our Lord's miraculous power over the sea. Our Lord being worshipped, Jesus' supernatural mastery of the water brought them to their knees. And it should bring us to our knees this morning as well. 
They worshiped and confessed, saying of a truth, Thou art the Son of God. I don't know when the last time you said that, but I want to tell you this. He deserves to hear that, and He longs to hear that. I've never understood some of my charismatic friends who think that to worship you have to get in a language that you can't understand. Why would I want to speak to God in a language that, he, that I cannot understand? I want to know what I'm saying to Him, and what I want to say to Him this morning is this, Of a truth, Thou art the Son of God. And you tell me what heavenly language you could say where that would be any better. Of a truth, Thou art the Son of God. Somewhere today in Germany, there's a German Christian who's saying to him in German, Of a truth, Thou art the Son of God. I don't know German. All I know is Stiley Knock. That's Silent Night. I learned the first line of that in high school. I don't know any other German. I don't know French. or I don't know any of that stuff. Portions of America, I don't know how to speak in anymore. But I know who I am and the language God's given me, I say with the disciples in that boat, Of a truth, You are the Son of God. And I worship you, I bow before you this morning to thank you and give you glory and honor and praise. This chapter closes with a brief mention of the land of Gennesareth. When men of that place recognized Jesus, they called everybody from the regions around that were sick and begged Him that they could just touch the hem of His garment. I imagine these people healed were very grateful, but I doubt if they fully realized who He was. Certainly they had no degree of realization like Peter and the disciples. They didn't have the benefit of his previous experience or his teaching like many others. They just saw him demonstrate his sovereignty over nature and they responded to him in that way. I'm sitting here this morning preaching to people who have had much light. We have had much light. This isn't true of all of you, but I would venture to say this is true of probably 95% plus of this congregation. We can't remember a time when we were not exposed to the Word of God. Most of us here have had much light, and to whom much is given, much is required. And the first thing we should do is say, Lord, of a truth... You are the Son of God. And I worship you. And I bow before you. And I humbly, I humbly prostrate myself in your presence. I bow the knee to you. I bow the head to you. I lift my hands in praise to you. The words that come out of my mouth are to you and to you alone who is worthy of praise. And as you say that, just remember that this Son of God will in just a few months not be on a fishing boat or not be on the banks of around the water feeding 5,000. This one will not be teaching in the synagogues, nor will he be being touched by the hem of people's garments. But he will be doing what he came to do. And with outstretched arms and a bowed head, He will give glory to God. And He will declare it is finished. And our salvation will be secured forever and forever. Preacher, I don't know Him this morning. What should I do? You should repent of unbelief. You should call, as Isaiah said, upon the name of the Lord. 
and ask Him to save you. You should say, God, thank you for being merciful to me, a sinner. Now, Father, cleanse me and forgive me. You should call out unto Him. You say, I don't have anything to offer. You should do what Isaiah said that I repeat so often. Come by without money, without price. Come ye to the water and drink. You should come. You should call upon His name. And He alone through His power can change your heart forever. There was a day when the hungry crowd got hungry again, even though He fed them. There was a day when the sea that He calmed raged again. There was a day when all the sick that He healed in Gennesareth had children and grandchildren who got sick again. But for those of us who have come to Him for saving grace, there's never been a day that we've ever been without His righteousness and His justification and His standing that He gave us with God Almighty. Thank God He secured that forever. Of a truth, He is the Son of God. Father, I want to thank You this morning for the privilege to read this short segment of history. Lord, to read about actual events where Your servant John died, where multitudes that were following You for their own selfish reasons, You graciously fed for disciples who were in obedience to You and found themselves in peril and danger for whom You prayed and then came to them with words of comfort and words of assurance. For sick people in Gennesaret who had just thought there was no hope but death, but then You were there and brought hope. Lord, whether any of these or all of these recognize it or not, we thank You that because of Your Word and Your grace to us that we know today that You of a truth are the Son of God. And we worship You for that this morning. Lord, I want to thank You for the privilege to be gathered with my brothers and sisters in Christ. Not only my blood family, my wife and children, but to be gathered with a group of people that are more strongly and eternally bound than just bound by fleshly ties. Lord, we are bound together by Your salvation. And individually and collectively this morning, we offer to You our worship and our praise and our thanksgiving because You, because of Your grace, because of Your mercy, You have made it possible that we can leave here today and say of a truth, You are the Son of God. For those who have not yet seen that and cannot confess that, may You work a work of saving grace in their heart. And for those of us who know it today by faith, may we, like the disciples, may we continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To whom be glory forever and forever. Amen.